Welcome to the 263rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of disability, justice, and COVID-19 with Lakshmi Fjord, Elaine Gerber, and Lenore Manderson. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, April 21st, 2021, there are 3,047,222 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 is now 568,475 lives lost. In Poland, they're reporting 62,734 deaths from COVID-19 and the Czech Republic reports 28,640 deaths from the disease. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is April Dunn, Louisiana Fighter for Disability Rights Dies at 33. This was written by John Schwartz. It appeared March 31st, 2020 in the New York Times. April Dunn, an advocate for people with disabilities who worked for the governor of Louisiana, died of complications of the coronavirus March 29, 2020, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She was 33. Her death was announced by Governor John Bell Edwards. April worked hard as an advocate for herself and other members of the disability community, he said. Ms. Dunn was a very visible presence in the state capitol. As chair of the Louisiana Developmental Disabilities Council, she gave frequent testimony and urged lawmakers to enact laws that could bring the marginalized into life's mainstream. She was unable to take standardized tests and so never received a high school degree, but helped pass a law that provided alternative paths to a degree. She was a voice that people respected, said Bambi Polizola, director of the Governor's Office of Disability Affairs. When she asked something of someone, you just knew it was the right thing for the right reasons, she said. She was also determinedly considerate, starting each day checking off a list of friends' birthdays and wishing each of them a happy birthday online. Ms. Dunn was born with fetal alcohol syndrome and cerebral palsy. Her mother, Jonette Dunn, who adopted her at five months, said Ms. Dunn had frequent upper respiratory infections and episodes of pneumonia. She did a lot of suffering as a baby, she recalled. She was always sick. But Miss Dunn was also determined to find a place in the world, her mother said. I want to help people, she would tell her mother. People like me. She joined state government as an intern in 2017 and became a member of the governor's staff in 2018. The governor recorded a public service announcement with her to promote hiring people with disabilities. On March 10th of 2020, Ms. Polizola said she, Ms. Dunn, and another colleague spent the day driving to meetings around the state. All three of them became ill with the virus, she said, though her own case and the other colleagues were mild. By Thursday of that week, doctors told Ms. Dunn's mother that they did not expect her daughter to survive, and on Friday, she entered the hospital. Paramedics warned her mother that she would not be allowed to visit. She sent Ms. Polizola a text message saying, I need for you to be strong. She's dying. Remembering the moment they were preparing her daughter for the ride in the ambulance, Ms. Dunn said April had an urgent request. Mommy, when you come by, be sure to bring my cell phone and my notepad. I still need to wish everyone a happy birthday. 
Okay, we're going to turn to our conversation for today, and I have just a wonderful panel of experts. Let me introduce them to you. Lakshmi Fjord is an environmental justice anthropologist whose community participatory action research methods and evidence led to two historic legal precedents for environmental justice at the federal and Virginia state level. For the first time, a federal appeals court overturned the air permit to cite the largest U.S. fracked gas compressor station in an 83% majority Freedman dissent community on the basis of environmental justice. This contributed to the cancellation of the $8 billion Atlantic Coast Pipeline. With Deva Kasnitz and Pam Block, Lakshmi was a foremother of disability studies in anthropology and deaf studies in disability studies. She organized the first AAA panel on disability and disasters immediately after Katrina in 2005, recruiting Elaine Gerber and Karen Nakamura. She now works in four Freedman-built communities in Virginia, facing imminent threats of new toxic polluting infrastructure. Elaine Gerber is a medical anthropologist and disability studies scholar at Montclair State University and a former president of the Society for Disability Studies. Prior to joining the faculty at MSU, she served for five years as the senior research associate for the American Foundation for the Blind and taught in the graduate program in disability studies at the City University of New York. Her work examines the intersection between culture and the body, initially with a focus on women's reproductive health and more recently on disability. Current projects revolve around food insecurity and disablement, audio description, and cultures of ableism. There are both theoretical contributions and practical applications to her work. My third guest is Lenore Manderson. Lenore is Distinguished Professor of Public Health and Medical Anthropology in the School of Public Health, University of Witzwatersand, and an NRF A-rated scholar. She holds appointments also with Brown University in the United States and Monash University in Australia. Known internationally for her work on inequality, social exclusion, and the impact of compromised health and embodied difference in Australia, Southeast and East Asia and Africa, she's published some 750 books, articles, book chapters, and reports in these and other areas. Lenore chairs the external review group of the Social Innovation in Health Initiative of TDR since 2015 and is a member of the board of directors of the Society for Applied Anthropology. She was awarded the Society of Medical Anthropology Career Achievement Award in 2016, and in January of last year was admitted as a member of the Order of Australia. Norm Anderson, Elaine Gerber, and Lakshmi Fjord, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thank you for sure. having us. Thank you for having us. So I like to start the way I usually do, just find out where people are calling from, what the pandemic situation is looking like there, Maybe if you want to update us on the vaccination situation where you are, it's good to get that vantage point too. Elaine, let me start with you. <laughs> um, sure, thanks. Um, I am uh, generally in the New York, New Jersey area of the United States, although right now I'm calling in from Connecticut, um, although technically that's the tri-state area. Um, as I'm sure your listeners know, this area was hit really hard uh, with the pandemic early on last spring. And um, right now, though, um, there there's a lot of vaccination. There There is definitely uh, I, in the state of Connecticut where I am right now, they've um, they're having walk in sites because um, they're I guess everyone who has um, registered. Um, has gotten one. So there's, it, that's a good thing. And although I know that's not the case in the rest of the country. So just a quick follow-up, what's happening on your campus? Is, are things moving back to in-person instruction? Oh, I was going to get to that later, but sure. sure. Um, well, right now we're almost finished with this spring term. So we're, we're fully remote. We've been fully remote um, this past year on my campus, although there's some on-campus things that are happening. Um, and uh, the plan is for a uh, return to full um, campus culture in the fall for the fall term. In the fall. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Lakshmi, let me turn to you. Same question where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there. Yes, I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, in the central part of the state of Virginia. Uh, I live just two blocks from where the white supremacists um, held a uh, violent rally, uh, Unite the Right. It's become kind of a, Charlottesville's become infamous 
uh, for that. And our state is very, uh, has very different pockets. So Charlottesville is relatively wealthy. It's um, quite progressive, but it's nestled in a much larger red uh, county. And the University of Virginia, where I'm affiliated with an honorary position as a visiting scholar, um, is in a hybrid. It was closed down last spring entirely, all remote. And then in the fall of 2020 began the hybrid. Um, that caused a huge uptick, as we all knew, in cases. And there's been a lot of difficulty with getting students on board with not congregating. And yet the biggest the most deaths we've had have been in nursing homes, of which there are many. There's a lot of retirees here, a lot of assisted um, SNF facilities, and because this is a regional health center. The University of Virginia Hospital serves four or five counties, and so the counties that surround us are all very sparse, rural, um, mostly very conservative Trump supporters with many clustered communities of African-Americans who are the descendants of enslaved people on the plantations that still exist, um, those sites and descendants still living where they were enslaving those the folks. So there's there are two prisons in the community in which I do my main field work. And so they've been major sites, um, a maximum and a minimum security prison. Um, many of the people who work there became infected as well and then brought those home to their communities. We have many places that don't have any doctors at all like the county that I will discuss later, um, Union Hill community, that they have no doctor whatsoever, nor does the county next to it. Um, and so everyone has to travel an hour uh, at least to get to a medical center. So this is, uh, this, it's, it hasn't had the disastrous numbers of deaths that we encountered in say New York City and parts of New Jersey as well, but, it's very clustered as we've all, as all of us who work in public health have come to understand by population and inequalities. Well, with Lakshmi and Elaine, we have the East Coast of the United States in the call. Lenore, let's bring you in and get the same question. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I'm actually physically in Australia at present. Um, but I do work in South Africa and I'm still teaching in South Africa and writing and supervising in South Africa. So I'm living in two countries, um, mentally, although physically sutured in one. Australia has been enormously privileged. I came back here in March um, really for a meeting and then I couldn't leave again. I still can't leave the country and there is no um movement of the population out of the country. So we're quarantined with the luxury that being a large island provides. Um, and that means Australia. Um, there was a real spike in July last year that led to a three-month harsh lockdown in Melbourne. And since then, there is one case a week nationwide or one case a day. No, less than one case a day. And so for a country of 26 mm -hmm. million, and we, we have, have had 28,000 cases and almost all of them um, were up until August last year. Vaccine, how, so that sounds like the good story, right? Vaccines are rolling out at snail's pace with controversy at every step of the way. So originally there was supposed to be a speedy A1A, 1B vaccination for people who were compromised or essential workers, and um, essential workers was always glossed as health workers rather than other people in essential workforces. Um, that has continued, but with, um, you know, the main drug and the drug being produced in the country is AstraZeneca. Um, so people with compromised health under 50 are now no longer receiving that and we're waiting for more supplies of Pfizer. 
there is now a plan um, to be announced later today um, to actually extend availability of the vaccine to anyone over 50 because there's so much um, caution. I, I don't want to call it vaccine resistance. I do want to call it caution um, in the country. I have my vaccine um, now in 80 minutes' time. So I, I sort of sneak in as, you know, to, towards the end of um, uh, the, the first phase um, and and then we're really watching this space. Um, and they are setting up national vaccine centres or statewide vaccine centres as opposed to surgery. But it's ridiculous because doctors, my local doctor's surgery receives 50 vaccines per week. I mean, they'd have that many patients on a daily basis. This is insane. Um, and it's certainly not the way to do a speedy vaccine. In South Africa... Um, things are proceeding slowly um, in terms of vaccine. Um, South Africa at one point was the fifth highest country in the world in terms of numbers of cases of coronavirus and was in the top ten probably in terms of deaths. And that was enormously worrying. It was largely in urban centres, which are extremely congested and with very, very rundown infrastructure. So there was a real worry that um, the impact would um, increase and, and there was a point late last year when every day I or someone knew somebody who died from coronavirus, not necessarily directly, but through our networks. Um, it slowed down. They are rolling out a vaccine. The vaccine of preference is Johnson & Johnson, um, that's partly because Johnson Johnson did a big trial in South Africa and they're just um, doing the reveal now. So, But, but the um, evidence does point to its efficacy enough for the country to buy into it. And um, But, you know, at this stage, there is no, most people are not anticipating having a vaccine until sometime next year. Um, as soon as I can get back there, I will, accepting that um, AstraZeneca is not affected, effective against the South African variant. So I'm waiting for a booster mm -hmm. and hoping it comes through really quickly because I'm going crazy watching my work and, and, and the events unfold without physically being there. Thank you for those reports from, from Australia and from South Africa and just to underline something you said there, as soon as this conversation is over, you're going for your vaccination. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad you could share that. Thank you. Um, so disability studies, I, I just want to acknowledge the scholar, Amy Hamry, who has also been a, a guest on COVID calls. And um, she made some initial suggestions that helped bring this session together today. So thanks to Amy. We're going to start a little bit broadly here just about disability studies and, and the ways that each of you come into this work. Um, so just give you a, a chance to talk a little bit about how your own background before COVID, um, the kind of research questions you've been engaged with, you know, how you came into this field. It's such a diverse and vibrant field right now. And, and I've found it absolutely um, mind expanding and essential to understand the pandemic, particularly the ways the pandemic reveals longstanding structural inequality. Um, but you're the expert, so let me turn to you. And Elaine, let me bring you in first on this question, if that's all right. Sure. Um, could you repeat the question specifically that you want me to, to address? Um, how I got into disability studies or specific exactly. to the COVID uh, information? Pre-COVID. So um, I was, um, I, I got into disability studies, luckily, and by happenstance. I fully admit that. Um, I had uh, a focus, as you announced in my bio, um, where I was working on reproductive health, women's health in general, um, as a graduate student, when there really, back when there wasn't really much of a thing of a field called disability studies. Um, and so um, I really didn't know much about uh, the field such as it was after, um, and then I graduated and um, I actually landed a job at the American Foundation for the Blind. And um, that was not at all what I had been training or preparing to do, but I wanted to find something that was applied and outside of academia. 
And um, I got very lucky in getting that position. It was the best postdoc I could have ever had. Shout out to Corinne Kirchner. Um, anyway, um, shortly after I started there, I um, my boss could not attend a conference at the Society for Disability Studies and so sent me instead. And it was literally um, the best education I could have ever gotten. Um, and it transformed my life and it tra actually transformed me as an anthropologist, made me a much better anthropologist. Um, so um, that's sort of how I got into disability studies. Um, my my original work in the field was centering around blindness and visual impairment. Mm. Um, but I'm um, my disaster related work was um, with Lakshmi and Lenore was um, kind of coincidental as well in that I had been working on some focus groups and they were already planned with the groups with um, national groups of blind and visually impaired people in the United States. Um, and <laughs> then tragedy struck. And so all of the the, we kept that we continued forward with the research and we had the, the focus phone focus groups, but all everyone ever wanted to talk about on it was about the scrolls at the bottom and how they couldn't get access to information. Um, and so it really triggered a lot for me that, you know, I mean, communication is so essential to survival in many ways. And this is just really obviously one very noticeable way. Um, so. Absolutely. Lakshmi, let me bring you in. Uh, same question, you know, so what's your pathway into disability studies? Well, as always, I'm a bit of an outsider and rebel. Um, <laughs> I got, I talk about backing in. I was a, I was an actor and I was at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Institute and became involved with the National Theater of the Deaf that was located there. And I, I learned uh, sign language from them. And I was introduced to Deaf with a capital D culture from the very people who were the most, uh, how shall I say, beautiful, eloquent signers in the country as my teachers who, um, and I, I was just 20 years old, which was kind of important, you know, because we're still incredibly impressionable. And what I was what I was introduced to was how um, disability centric or in this case, deaf centric uh, life and perspectives create these spaces of incredible creativity and innovation that everybody ends up loving and benefiting from. So the NTD created these, I mean, they didn't create, let's say they were from a long tradition of, of deaf ways of performance and linguistic performance using sign mime and they, uh, really embody a lot of physicality because signed languages are, you know, four dimensional and cinematic. And so all actors kind of basically love watching them. And many directors, mm. once NTD was formed, just drank in their methods. So what could have been a better foundation for me in seeing that disability-centric perspectives always provide creative, innovative uh, ways of being in the world that actually give so much value added. So that was that was then. And then at age 40, I went back to school and started studying anthropology and then ended up just going on and going on until I got my PhD because really it was a love affair with anthropology. And then it came time as a single mom to pick my topic. And all of the people that I worked with were like, hey, wait a second, this deaf studies uh, experience in NTD is really interesting and rich. And so I ended up doing a typical four-country cross-cultural comparative uh, study of different ways of as if you were a parent, a hearing parent of a deaf child mm -hmm. who's born and then receives in... Um, technologically advanced countries, you know, these autoacoustic emissions tests that tell parents as soon as their child is born, oops, something may be wrong with their child. But before there were these tests, parents of deaf children didn't act hearing parents of deaf children who are the majority of 95% in most cases of the parents of 
deaf children, um, just adapt and they're with their kids and they develop home signs and they develop ways of being. So this way in which technology, especially in the United States, sort of made hearing parents feel immediately that their child was less and that they were less as parents was the jumping off point for me to do mm. this cross-cultural comparison of the United States, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. And I got a Fulbright to, to go there to do the second half of my dissertation. Um, and so it wasn't sort of a very politically correct thing to say that deaf studies was could be located in disability studies as all of you on the call know and rightly so because uh you know from a deaf perspective these are linguistic barriers to inclusion if they aren't able to participate and that they need to be addressed that way and signed languages needed to be available to parent, hearing parents of deaf kids. And so um, I really um, wanted to tread carefully and talk ab about what deaf studies could offer <laughs> in a way to disability studies. And that led to many people like Karen Nakamura getting involved, whose, whose dissertation was on um, deaf studies in Japan. And so when it was time, when Katrina happened, so this is, I'm just going through these major, you know, mm -hmm. seismic changes. Yeah, sure. I was a postdoc at Berkeley in, in disability studies, um, an Ed Roberts postdoc fellow. And that was a sort of seismic change for me that um, led me to integrate disability studies into disaster studies. And that, um, became how we all began working together uh, as people who worked on disasters and disability. Such an important, thank you for that, and such an important integration. And those who are not familiar may not have known that um, those two fields didn't start to find that integration until the, this century, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, Lenore, Leibridge, bring you in, same question, how you found your own work coming into disability studies. Um, I've always worked as a medical anthropologist, a medical historian, but from um, the late 1980s, I began to work specifically on infectious diseases of poverty. And many of those infectious diseases of poverty are ones that are identified by the impact they have in terms of bodily function or visually. So something to take some obvious examples, leprosy has always been a stigmatising illness by virtue of its effect on the body. Um, so has leishmaniasis, which is an, a mosquito-borne disease which cause, causes terrible swelling of the limbs and um, gonads and so on. So there, that was always there in the background. But from the late 90s, I began to work on chronic diseases and uh, interventions and the impact of interventions. And from there, worked um, resulting in the book Surface Tensions, which was published in 2011, on the impact on identity of changed bodily function. And that included things such as amputations from sarcomas, um, uh, and um, loss of function through stroke, um, mastectomy, transplants, and so on. So I began with a focus on embodiment, but at the same time I was already supervising PhD students, both in Australia and in South Africa. At that point I was an honorary professor at the University of the Witzvaterstrand, looking at the way in which being differently abled impacted on health on the capacity for everyday living and on equalities, and that included equalities of life opportunities and increasingly what happens to populations and individuals who are differently abled under certain extreme, um, specific conditions. So we got together um, bringing rather different perspectives um, and began increased our own sense of concern of what happened 
when there were circumstances um, outside of a kind of relatively smoothish everyday running. And COVID-19, I think, really highlights that, not the least of which has been that um, if there was ever a group that was invisible um, in the rhetoric of the everyday in relation to COVID-19, it's been people who have limited access to information and or limited access to services and or limited access to structures and support. It is people with a range of different abilities and who are especially abled. Um, they're, they're almost entirely not discussed. And in Australia, that's become really, uh, was very obvious a few, well, in July, when there was a major enforced lockdown of a number of high-rise apartments. And the high-rise apartments are social housing, and social housing is provided for people who have very limited um, uh, income. And the people who are resident in the social housing are partly refugees and asylum centre seekers, people living in community release, former prisoners, other people with very low incomes and compromised health conditions. And that included a number of people who have a range um, of disabilities and or who are dependent on external support. And as a result of that lockdown, no one could go in or out of the building. So food was left in the foyer and the quality of food that was left was deeply shocking. And helpers couldn't go in. And it was absolutely rendered invisible that that might be a problem. And so, in fact, this conversation really forces me to revisit who was forgotten and what the long-term health costs are for that population. You know, they may not have received, um, may not have been placed at risk, but they were actually living um, in an environment where the virus was circulating all the time. The other group that has been rendered invisible in the context of COVID-19 are people living in assisted living. So every time we heard in Australia, and it wasn't even discussed for South Africa, but in Australia, of health workers or support workers going into residential care, that was always glossed as elderly and frail people over the age of 80, people over the age of 90, and every death that was reported, and Australia had few enough deaths that they kind of were reported, um, were that disability and um, senior status coincided. And not that there were people living in those residential care homes who were young and disabled and dependent, nor was there ever any discussion of people living in, in community housing with support and who those supporters were. Those supporters are exactly the same kind of people who are going into old age residential care homes and they're largely people who are on precarious employment who are least able to access healthcare themselves and who were most vulnerable. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls and talking today with Lenora Manderson, Elaine Gerber, and Lakshmi Fjord about disability studies. And we're talking now more specifically about the way that people with disabilities have been impacted by COVID-19. Lakshmi, let me turn to you. We're just hearing a little bit from Lenora about that. Can I jump in, if I might? Absolutely. I just wanted to respond. Go ahead. Sorry. I I just wanted to respond to something that Lenore said. I think it's really important, obviously, the populations that are occluded from the story that we don't hear about. Um, And obviously, that's the focus of this call and this and this podcast um, is to raise awareness about that population. Um, 
And um, but I also want to reiterate that, like what Lenore was saying also applies in the United States um, mm-hmm. in terms of who is um, most at risk and who had least access to services. Um, and of course, um, in this country, we have huge <laughs> racial inequity, too. So those um, burdens were disproportionately shared by disabled people of color. Um, but I also wanted to just say that the the seniors and that the, although we think culturally anyway in the United States, the way we think of seniors is that we don't think of them as disabled, even though they are impaired and almost all of them by definition have some sort of impairment, particularly if they're living in a nursing home at this point in COVID. Um, and yet those deaths and were not reported as disabled deaths, they're reported as seniors. And I just want to remind everybody that those people are also um, they're part and parcel of this community. Thanks. I, if I can follow up on that, and then, sorry, I'll let someone else. No, no, go, I mean, the the interesting thing about that too, and I, I'm sure it came out in the US, but it certainly did in Australia, not in South Africa, because the conditions are very different. But what also has has emerged is the absolute appallingly substandard care of people who are dependent on the care of others in residential care homes. And there's like chilling accounts of people with ants eating at separating bed sores in nursing homes. And this is one of the wealthier countries in the world. And I just find it scandalous. And then you think, okay, what don't we know, given that this is only the, the, the you know, if you magically the thin edge of the wedge around the quality of care to people with disabilities under all circumstances, not under the the um, frightening circumstances of infection from COVID and possible death. Lakshmi, just bringing yeah. you in to react. Anything that Lenore yeah. and are talking yeah, about? I yeah, I do. The, the, to all of this, you know, the through line I think that we're finding with this is that. You know, all of the hopes that we had in, in disability and disaster studies of placing the expertise of disabled people at the forefront of prepare, disaster preparedness with the understanding that if you have people with this kind of knowledge about how just to live and overcome, you know, environmental and social justice barriers every day, their expertise is the most important expertise you need when doing disaster preparedness and COVID is a full-blown disaster. And so we see once again in, certainly in the countries we're describing except South Africa in some cases or most cases are individualistic oriented. They're not, they, they, the thing that was so tragic about Katrina, so tragic about COVID was that each person is supposed, each person or family was left to fend and to prepare on their own with the Red Cross giving lists of what a disabled person should have on hand of, you know, weeks of supplies of medicines, which they're not even allowed to get through Medicare or Medicaid or, you know, pharmacies aren't allowed to give it. And so it's kind of a, uh, you know, a lack of reality. It's it's a lack of common sense. And we keep thinking if, you know, I'm talking about we as the three of us and those of us who share mm-hmm. this kind of uh, knowledge base, which is disability centric, really. It's saying that, you know, the huge suffering and loss of life that occurs when we don't place that expertise at the front and center of decision-making and policy planning and programmatic, um, you know, design as inclusive design, not universal design, not one size fits all, not all individuals have to do everything, but inclusive design and thinking about inclusion rather than individuals kind of left on their own. And so that's what we saw. And that COVID just isolated everybody even more. You know, people who were quote unquote able-bodied, you know, were experiencing utter isolation because of lockdown. And then we saw the geometric suffering, harm, and in the United States just unbelievable slow violence against anyone who could not, did not have the financial 
um, capability to order in or have, uh, you know, or live in a family in which they're embedded, um, just be left to die really and suffer alone. And so it just, it, it just leads me, us back to, I hope that this will help with these understandings of what is the form of knowledge that's needed in order to prevent these sorts of disasters from happening on this scale again. I just want to stay with this for a second. Sorry, go ahead, Lenore, go ahead. And then I want to follow up. You sure? Please. Um, no, I was, well, right. I was just going to say, I mean, there's the slow violence and then there's the the immediate effected violence against people. And your point around accessing supplies is a really important one there. Like it's almost, it's, it's, it, the thoughtlessness that's involved in that. So if people can't leave the house, they can't access supplies. And if they can't have visitors, they can't have assistance. So if someone's living in their own home and is dependent upon a personal carer, the extra effort that might be involved to even get permission, assuming you live in context that is good enough to allow for that kind of support. But I think also things happened enormously quickly. And so a lot of people were simply left without information. Um, and living conditions where their health is always compromised and and disability is one of the huge fault lines um, that determines um, poor quality housing, low income, lack of access to services. And, in you know, the great um, informal settlements um, of informal housing in eastern southern Africa, including in South Africa, that means that people have to share toilets. And if you can't leave your house because of lockdown, and that was enforced by the military, then what happens? Mm. And even if you can access toilets, if you're sharing a toilet with 500 people and are sharing it with 500 people, then you can't wash your hands and you can't maintain hygiene and you don't have access to support, then you are deeply compromised. And so what was happening on the ground was in contradiction to what people were being told because there was no support to enable that kind of care, um, let alone any involvement of people. So, the, I mean, the only people who stood up and began to start helping out in some settings were volunteers from the community because no one had thought of talking, for example, to social workers or support workers, let alone networks of people from disability support groups. Um, I mean, the other problem with that, but we'll, I'll come back to that later, was the way in which COVID-19 exacerbated certain disabilities. Exactly. I'd, and I, I'd like to actually at some point make that connection between the fast and slow violence uh, that we have perceived and are experiencing, which is, you know, I can't breathe, literally, you know, kneeled on the neck. But the people that I work with in environmental justice communities are literally being, their breath is being taken they are, you know, suffering from enormous levels of respiratory illnesses and diabetes is also partially is caused by environmental toxins as well and heart disease. So when you're targeted for most, if not all of the toxic polluting infrastructure in the United States, um, which has been a major cause of climate change in the United States, because if wealthy communities or politically connected communities manage to get those sites moved somewhere else, and they're always to um, communities that are already carrying a disproportionate burden of health impacts. So this is that part of our work that talks about disaster produced disability, how environmental disaster, envi causes environmental health, thus causing um, disabilities as well that needs to, to be out there um, amongst communities that are also right now, of course, being targeted and have been targeted for 400 years in the United States for the violence um, based on being enslaved and considered to be also 
commodity, you know, just commodities to consume. Like right now, it's the commodities of their land and their communities are being um, taken by corporations who are then given permission to pollute there. I'm glad you raised that. We've had a number of calls on COVID calls about the PM 2.5 problem, and particularly in Cancer Alley, so in Louisiana and the United States. Um, And those numbers are really staggering. And you see that um, those communities where they already had chronic respiratory issues, um, but may not have been uh, people identified necessarily as um, disabled um, because they couldn't get health services or they they just weren't um, part of those support communities. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the pandemic, the United States Environmental Protection Agency decided that it would relax air quality rules um, because, you know, the concern is for the economy. And so here you see, and I, and I wanted to turn to that, Elaine, bring you in. One of the, the parts of this that I've found um, pretty distressing is, is one of the things people have often turned to as a success in the pandemic, that we were able to accommodate normal life when the lockdowns happened and we needed to accommodate people working from home, um, then all of a sudden it it became possible. And I I wonder how that has, you know, registered with those who are in the disability rights community and those you may be working with, what it meant to see that having been told as long as they could remember that it was hard to accommodate their needs. And then all of a sudden, very quickly, um, to keep the economy running, yeah, we can accommodate those needs because people need need to work. I, I think I'm drawing maybe too, maybe I'm making it too stark or, or um, too simple, but I wonder what you think about that, Elaine. Well, I think that's, a, um, it's a good point. And it's, it's certainly, um, in my mind, it's certainly true. I think that um, people are, um, I'm sorry, I just, I, I apologize. I'm really not a hundred percent today. And I, um, kind of just lost my train of thought. Um, but um, that's fine. We're just talking about this sort of accommodation and the discussion around accommodation. Right. So that's what I was going to say is that I think this has always been the case, right? That disabled people's needs get ignored until they become general population needs and then something right. gets done. And that, and that's, you know, across the board, that seems to be the case. Um, but um and piggybacking the technologies that we're all using, by the way, were all developed by disability expertise. The fact yeah, that we're using a video phone right now was developed through, you right. know, deaf expertise. The fact that the keyboard, the typewriter keyboard, was developed in the 1800s in Denmark uh, to uh, for deaf students uh, to to have vocational training and, and even. Uh, Speech Everything. text. Speech yeah. text that we use now. Speech text. Routinely in Zoom calls. Right. Is something yeah. that came from. Your from Dragon. Right. Your, yeah. Yeah, your Suri. Your all of these things. How come we're not acknowledging that the only way that we can work from home is because of disability innovations? It's just, it's astounding to me that this is not more publicly known. On the other hand. Um, in in most of the world, those technologies are least available to people at the bottom of any social um, uh, pole, and people with disabilities are right down there. And because of um, poor state support for people, um, in in most cases, including South South Africa, although South Africa does give disability grants, um, as in monthly grants to support people, but there's no way that people can afford any of the technologies that keep us connected. Um, and, I mean, that doesn't even simply apply to people with disabilities or other profoundly poor people. I mean, the university routinely checks that students have access to a computer and provides them with free data so they can contribute. Um, Last year I had masters, a master's student class, and the only communication platform that they could afford was WhatsApp. So I taught a master's degree course using WhatsApp because even the most simple technology beyond that is not affordable but you know other things 
um, are and and even much simpler. So you know, when we were talking before, I was thinking incontinence pads. Did anybody ever get incontinence pads to people who were disabled and living alone or living in impoverished settings? Possibly not. Um, the and or menstrual pads and. Um, Last night's little factum that one of my students told me is that women in jail in South Africa receive two menstrual pads per month, mm. which is not quite adequate. Yeah. Well, you um, brought up the slow violence that we're talking about here, where these, uh, again, these technologies were developed using disability knowledge and innovation, but they certainly were not um, inclusively, you know, then distributed. You know, distributed. And right. they create, deliberately almost create inequalities. So, yeah, every community in which I am, I work collaboratively is a rural community with no broadband, none, and very little internet um, I'm sorry, very little cell coverage. So let's mm -hmm. say you don't have broadband, then you can maybe use your cell phone, you know, as a uh, method of communication where the schools were all closed down, which was where the students then had access to Internet. Um, but then they had to learn from home. But of course, there was so they're all out in the parking lot of the schools trying to catch a wave of internet on their cell phones or running up hundreds and hundreds of dollars, you know, dollars a month for hotspots. Right. And so again, you know, the, it's the distributive aspect. It's the sense in which these are not done with inclusive design in mind. Like, how are you going to mm -hmm. make these inclusive? And again, I feel like the theories of disability uh, studies are very useful here. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, of course, is that not only do people, do, do people normally not have access and the people didn't think about those kind of questions that you're talking about, but that COVID itself produces disability. So disability okay. produces vulnerability to COVID. COVID is producing disability, right. and it's producing disability oh my directly, God. directly and indirectly. So directly through the as yet unknown long-term effects of COVID, indirectly because of the social costs um, and mental health issues also. Like right. Mental health Good. issues. Thanks and the other so thing many. is yes. the mental health issues and the other thing I was thinking about is South Africa and Botswana um, have the highest disability rate, um, uh, um, acquired brain injury rates um, in, in the world as a result, I think, of domestic violence. They have the highest violence rates in the world, the highest gender-based violence. 50% of women with acquired brain injury in Botswana have acquired brain injury because of gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. And initially the assumption was that there would be less gender-based violence with lockdown. Well, it very quickly transpired that the low rates of presenting for care was because the perpetrators of violence were at home with the people who were being targeted. So there was no way you could leave a house to seek refuge um, and the pressures of lockdown, including of unemployment and of isolation and mental health problems and so on, meant that there was an increase in gender-based violence, mm -hmm. um, producing more um, immediate health problems, but also risking long-term problems, including of disability. Well, and the children that are at home as well with them are being exposed to much more domestic violence because of COVID and deprivation. You know, we have a huge hunger problem in the United States. I mean, it is enormous. Yeah. And that has become so exacerbated. And you think about the effects of malnutrition, lack of nutrition, scarcity on developing children's brains. Mm -hmm. And how that will be, I think, one of those, you know, history will tell about these, this COVID generation um, of kids where their school lunch 
was possibly the only meal that they had each day. And a lot of places have been working on that, trying to make sure that, you know, the meals are continued. And even I know people who are riding their bicycles to homes to, to, to take the, you know, meals to the children in their classrooms um, who have been in their classrooms. So, yes, these are um, sort of long term as well. You know, yeah. we have a huge number of chronic fatigue, um, what they're calling long haul chronic fatigue um, P- uh, syndrome folks from uh, from COVID. So here we're sort of surfacing not only the the vulnerabilities that are made by disability, but also the disabilities that are made by COVID, the way that Lenore put it and the way you're talking about Lakshmi. Elaine, I wanted to bring you back in. I, if there's anything you wanted to react to and what um, Lakshmi um, and Lenore were just talking about, and then we're going to turn to one sort of final area of discussion before we wrap yes. up today. Thanks, Scott. I did actually um, both Lenore's points about like the access to technology and digital services are obviously more pronounced in poorer countries, but they definitely the digital divide issues are a a huge issue here in the United States. Um, We have really unequal access in many, many, many um, places in this country and including about food access. So I work with college students. I teach on a campus. And um, there's enormous amount of food insecurity among college students, even pre-COVID. And now um, since COVID, that obviously is worse. And at least the way our country did the first round of funding, college students weren't really eligible for any uh, government supports. They were kind of caught between their parents and and children status. Um, And so they really lost out. And I think it was really particularly hard on that generation and that age group. Um, And it... um, If I may, there is one thing that kind of came out of this as we've been talking about this, obviously, this horrible burden that that the pandemic has caused um, both for disabled, previously disabled people and in creating more uh, impairment out there in the world. But I guess um, I wanted to also just kind of think about going back to Lakshmi's point that these were technologies that that and knowledges that emerged from the disability community itself. And throughout this past year plus, we have learned a lot as a society about things that actually work for a lot of people. And that was sort of your point, Scott, too. I think that, you know, now that they're everybody's concerns, they're widespread. But um, I have concern about how we go forward in this into the future because, um, uh, and I don't want to take the conversation that's unnecessarily in that direction, uh, if that's not where you were intending to go, but our university is already, um, scheduling for fall and they have told us they have intentions. The president actually canceled a lot of colleges, um, plans for classes because there weren't enough face-to-face classes. So people who wanted to still offer remote classes or hybrid classes, we were told we couldn't do it. And yet one of the things that has become really noticeably apparent to me and probably to many educators is that um, these access technologies that we've been using to teach for the past year um, and for students to learn from the past year benefit all students. Mm-hmm. And so they're, yes, they are, they, they, this actually, we hear a lot about, at least in the United States, we hear a lot about how bad Zoom school is. But um, the truth is, I think also that it's, accessible to a lot of people who didn't have access before. So people who had mobility impairments, my campus is a very long, hilly campus. It's hard to get around um, and they don't have to now. They can take their classes remote. Economically, it's more affordable to our students. So a lot of students, though they may complain, it's a subpar education, actually prefer because they don't have to drive to campus and pay for parking and all the costs that go along with it to their time and everything else. and one of the things that we've been doing on campus, for example, is um, all of the courses on Zoom are automatically recorded and made available to students in the class, which is a huge benefit for students with learning disabilities, for students with chronic uh, fatigue, for all kinds of people. And um, there is zero discussion on my campus about how or if these things will continue Um and continue to make education accessible to many, many people. All the things that have been a benefit from this time are literally gonna go away. We're no longer gonna have courses recorded, for example. And that really, um, among other things, um, I think it really, if there was a moment to sort of go forward into a new normal and kind of try to take some lessons from this that weren't just awful and how it created such 
horrible this pandemic has been awful for so many people to actually think about some things that could be good that came from this that we can bring into the future um i'm a little disheartened i guess elaine let me just stay with that for a second we have a few minutes left and this was the final issue i wanted to talk about which is it, it is about going forward but particularly about the role of action activism um solidarity just coming out of this discussion um, what are some of the concrete steps that you think people can take, either if they're already in the disability justice fight or if they aren't yet and they're just learning about it for the first time? Elaine, this first, this is, we'll take this to you first. Sure, I'll so make it short. Is, just this issue you're talking about on your campus, right? Yeah. So now just push that across the entire United States or around the world. One particular slice of society, um, maybe a privileged one in, in many regards, but you're seeing the benefit of increasing access. And then those tools of increased access are not up to par that people like, okay, well, then let's bring them up to a better par. But how right. do we, how do we activate that? That's my question. Good question. And I wish I had a really easy answer to it. But um, I think on our campus, we've seen a little bit more activism than we had in the past. We've, the faculty and staff have created a disability caucus. Um, there is a, a student group on campus that's very active now that didn't exist before a disability student group. Um, and I think to your larger point, Scott, I, I don't know that I have the answer to it. And maybe Lenore and Lakshmi's background can better answer that. But I would I would say um, to build solidarity across uh, working class concerns that poor people um, from all kinds of different backgrounds are much more um, have a lot more in common in terms of this issue, although obviously disabled people have specific needs or uh, communication access or ways of moving in the world, et cetera. But um, the, the value, I think, that would come from solidarity with um, non-disabled populations, but also fighting for economic security and against inequality would actually go a really long way. Lakshmi, let me bring you in on that. Well, I think the short answer that I sort of have been touching on is that when you put at the center of the design or the planning, um, a disability centric or some people call it preferential option for the poor as you've heard used in um, public health, that actually everyone benefits. It's, it's that we all benefit from the disability tech innovations and disabled teachers you know, faculty with disabilities, as we all know, people like Georgina Klieg have been making their classes accessible uh, in every way to their students long before COVID, and so therefore could make a far smoother transition to all remote classes. It, those are the models that all teaching should have because every single one of the students benefit as Elaine so eloquently said, you know, all of these accommodations help a lot of people. And that's what's the case in disaster and COVID preparedness, that if you prepare for those needs, every single person benefits. Just like if you look uh, to stop environmental injustice and racism, you will stop climate change because, you know, if you can't locate toxic pollution anywhere, then you will have to innovate to, uh, you know, use all renewables and you'll somehow, oh, big surprise, quickly get to, uh, um, you know, to endpoints that don't harm. So I think, you know, that's kind of the takeaway message for me is that um, placing at the center these forms of knowledge and, you know, as, a, as common sense solutions to complex problems. Lenora, just going to give you the last word on this. We have to get you to your uh, vaccination here. So we're going to let you finish it up. Thank you. Um, you know, in reflecting on what people have been saying, I think the real issue is in much of the world and certainly in South Africa, um, disability remains the last point of inequality that is attended to. But one of the things that happened with COVID was in the scramble to protect critical care, hospital services, money was drawn away from other kinds of services. And the worry is 
the extent to which one can even begin to now retreat and recover that. I mean, still, priority is being given to um, acute care. People are being turned away from presenting to emergency um, settings and there is very, very little um, care being provided in the community. Um, in Brazil, support for children born with microcephaly um, was um, contracted in order to quarantine money for the response to COVID. And COVID has swamped out other things that are seen to be optional extras when everything else is working. I think much of the world caring for people who are differently abled remains the last optional extra we, can, we bother about. And that means that there is a huge fight in much of the world at present. India is the classic country now. I mean, think what is happening um, with these unbelievably high levels of virus to people who are living on the streets with um, serious disabilities. Just a reminder that you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time for my discussion with David Hassler from Kent State University. We'll be talking about poetry for the COVID-19 pandemic and the poetry project that they've had uh, ongoing there at Kent State. And I want to thank my guests today, Lenore Manderson, Elaine Gerber, and Lakshmi Fjord, uh, for the wisdom and the history and also the sort of call to action here at the end. Thank you all so much for the work you're doing and for your time today on COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Thank stay you. healthy. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Thank you.